0: Howdy listeners from coast to coast, the Gulf to Canada
1: and around the globe. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Oh boy, we got lots to cover today and there's so much going on. It's just insane. Fire hose of news out there. If you recall, we are in our second part of our series on personal financial preparedness. Last week I went over the precious metals, very generally. Made a recommendation as to who you might talk to, Harvard Gold. I think they're a terrific outfit and they will lead you through the process, tell you anything you want to know. They'll spend far more time with you than any other outfit that I've seen out there, and I don't think they'll lead you astray. HarvardGold.com, by the way, the banners are on the website, and I'm proud to have them as a sponsor, and I think they'll do you a good job. But this week, we're going to go over Bitcoin, which is a very interesting, pretty recent phenomena. I mean, Bitcoin did not exist until 2009. But we'll get into all that, and I'll tell you about some of the pros and some of the cons. And I don't pretend to be an expert in it, but I'll get you started. We're going to have articles on the website on it, and you can do all the research your little heart desires. Decide if it's for you or not for you, or in a big way, or a little way, or no way at all. On therightsideradio.com, if you want to read those articles. And this is the second in our three part series on the history of Israel and the history of Palestine, and, as you'll see next week, the history of other nations interference and dark influence into the palestinian and israeli histories because you know everybody has an axe to grind and everybody has a hidden motive but this week last week we went over palestine kind of the history of that area from the Palestinian point of view. This week, as I promised, we're going to be going over it from the Israeli point of view. Same history, but from different perspectives, which is really what both creates the fray and creates the twine in regions, how people perceive events. And of course, then I'll tell you the rest of the story. But first, let's start off with our founder's quote. And this week's quote is from Sam Adams, a guy that people really aren't familiar with. So as a little side junket here in history, Sam Adams was a distant cousin of John Adams, whom we've often quoted. He was a firebrand. He was really one of the spearhead leaders in the fight for liberty in the revolution. He organized the Committees of Correspondence. He authored a book or a pamphlet called The Rights of Colonists. He founded the Sons of Liberties. He was the principal organizer of the Boston Tea Party. Paul Revere's ride was really to warn Sam Adams more than any of the other founders. And the British government, in a high compliment to him, at least in his world, wanted him for treason a year, a full year, before he signed the Declaration of Independence along with 55 other brave Americans. And he was the guy who came up with that famous, famous quote, no taxation without representation. But among his many other great quotes is this one, quote, it is a tremendously important and never-ending problem for the self-governing American people to be ever alert, and vigorously active in combating, wherever necessary, any and all threats to individual liberty and to its supporting system of constitutionally limited government. Unquote. Amen. And now for our ranch story. (laughs) This is actually kind of a a fun little story. You know, I'm putting a wood stove in one of the rooms of the ranch house. And to get this wood stove installed uh, requires a kind of a fire backstop you got to put up a quarter-inch type of material called Wonderboard. People call it different things. And then on top of that, whatever your kind of finish is going to be, your finish to the room, tile, and in this case, tile and tin, which kind of matches the fireplace in that room. And although we could certainly get the job done, running that flute pipe from this wood stove, which by the way gets up to more than a thousand degrees when it's really rocky and rolling, up through a wooden ceiling near exposed beams and out the exterior metal skin of the roof is kind of a tricky process. You don't want to leak... For sure, you don't want it to destroy the integrity of the metal roof, <laughs> and the metal roof. Unfortunately, this is the only room we have a metal roof. Everything else is a asphalt shingle, and you certainly don't want to get in a position of a fire starting and red hot metal near wood is a recipe for a fire if it's not done right. And you do all sorts of things. You have double-walled pipe that comes out of the stove, and then that graduates to triple-walled pipe as it comes near the ceiling and goes through the ceiling, which is highly insulated and greatly reduces the heat transmission from the metal. So I started, and this was several months ago, I started looking for an outfit that could install the flue pipe. We're perfectly capable of doing the rest ourselves, but that particular thing I wanted somebody who really knew what they're doing who's done hundreds upon hundreds of them and i did not want to take the responsibility of burning the ranch house down because i wanted to save a couple shekels here and there and you know it was kind of funny but out here in wyoming you would think that there'd be well at least a couple outfits that installed wood stoves. But really, within about a hundred mile radius, there was only one. And we're all lined up now with them after (laughs) a number of attempts and a number of texted pictures of the installation area and the materials and et cetera, et cetera. But it took a full three or four months to get them scheduled and to get them comfortable with saying okay to the job because they are also a wood stove outlet and the wood stove that we're installing was not obtained through them. Anyway, I think everything is going to work like a charm, it's going to look great, and more importantly, it's going to work great. Have I mentioned I'm <laughs> I'm less than 100% trustful of the grid and of the government's propensity to interfere with the delivery of power. But I got the thinking over this process that what an opportunity for somebody. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of wood stoves in Wyoming. And there's a lot more being installed in Wyoming, and I would imagine elsewhere in the country as things deteriorate here and there. Yet all there was was this one outfit in a big radius. And it reminded me that somebody who's thinking on their feet, who has some guts, some ambition, some American DNA can really create a business from just about anything, just about anywhere, because there's always a niche for a skill and a talent that people need. Give that a little thought wherever you are listening to my voice. Perhaps you've been laid off from your job. Perhaps you don't like your job. Perhaps you've always had a hankering to go out and start your own deal and not punch a time clock and not say yes sir no sir to a boss and be willing to work the double long hours it takes to get a business off the ground functioning smoothly and profitable until all of you who decide to do that maybe inspired by this little story I'm bringing you, Godspeed to you. Keep the wind at your back, and the best of luck. Go get them. Let's talk about the history of Israel, particularly from the Israeli perspective. So Israel is a very small country in the Middle East. It's about the size of New Jersey, to put it in perspective. It's located on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea, and its neighbors, not too friendly, are Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria, and, of course, the Gaza Strip which is kind of a no-man's land. The population of Israel is a little bit more than 9 million people. Most of them are Jewish, but there's a number of Christians and there's a number of Muslims. And Israel occupies kind of that sweet spot which has many, many, many important archaeological and religious sites which are considered not only sacred by the Jews, but by Muslims and by Christians. And a very long, very complex history with continuing patterns of peace and, and deadly conflict. Most of what scholars know about Israel's ancient history comes from the Hebrew Bible, the Torah. According to the text, Israel's origins can kind of be traced back to Abraham, who is considered to be the father of both Judaism, through his son Isaac, and Islam, I uh, you didn't know that, through his son Ishmael. Abraham's descendants were thought to be enslaved by the Egyptians for many hundreds of years before finally getting free. You remember the story of Moses leading them to the Promised Land and settling in Canaan, which is approximately the region of modern-day Israel. King David of the Hebrews ruled the region from about 1000 BC for a number of years, and then his son, who became King Solomon, is credited with building the first holy temple in ancient Jerusalem, which is a powder keg and a sore point amongst all three religions today. In about 931 BC, the area was divided into two kingdoms, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Around 722 BC, the Assyrians invaded and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And in 568 BC, the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the first temple, which was quickly rebuilt by the Jews in about 516 BC. And then for the next ensuing centuries, what is now modern-day Israel was conquered and reconquered and ruled and re-ruled by all sorts of groups. The Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Arabs, the Fatimids, the Seljuk Turks, the Crusaders, the Egyptians, the Mamelukes, the Islamists, and others. Needless to say, this has not been a stable region for thousands of years. From 1517 to about 1917, and we reviewed this last week because this is a shared history between the Arabs, the Palestinians, and the Jews. Israel, and most of the Middle East, was ruled by the Ottoman Empire, basically the Turks. But World War I changed all that. And as I recounted to you last week, from the Palestinian perspective, the British Foreign Secretary, author James Balfour, submitted a letter of intent, this is toward the end of World War I, which supported the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. The Allies won the war in 1918. The 400-year-old Ottoman Empire was gone, toast, and Great Britain took over what became known as the Palestine area, which is modern-day Israel, Palestine, and Jordan. The Balfour Declaration and Britain's rule over this area was approved by the League of Nations in 1922, and as I recounted to you last week, for many reasons, the Arabs vehemently opposed the Balfour Declaration, and they were concerned even back then that a Jewish homeland would mean the subjugation of Arab Palestinians. Israel became an independent state in 1947, as Britain beat a hasty retreat from what was beginning to be a seething hotbed of coming war in that area. Britain's assets were depleted by World War II, and they had no stomach and no treasury to continue perpetuating the empire on which the sun never set. The city of Jerusalem is considered sacred by all three major religions. It contains the Temple Mount, which includes the holy sites at Aksa Mosque, the Western Wall, the Dome of the Rock, the Wailing Wall, and more. And of course, in addition to the religious conflict over who controls access to these sites and who controls that city and who can proudly proclaim it as its capital, there was the continuing enmity between these groups and others over land, right? As I told you last week, under all lies the land. In the end, folks, if you really boil it down, all wars are economic and the central pin of those economic struggles is land and the resources, both on and under the land. So even back then, at the very formation of Israel, there was all sorts of rancor and violent animosity between the groups over the Gaza Strip, you're familiar with that particularly lately, the Golan Heights, which is kind of a rocky high plateau between Syria and modern day Israel, and the West Bank, which is a pretty decent chunk of ground for that part of the world that divides modern-day Israel and Jordan. As I told you last week, in the late 19th and early 20th century, an organized religious and really political movement known as Zionism emerged amongst certain Jews, the more radical of the Jewish sect, and the Arabs hated it. The Arabs regarded Zionism as the arch enemy of their quest for a Palestinian home state, and their wish to control the resources, the land, and the farming of the area. And they were particularly upset, (laughs) it's a good thing they don't live in the southern border states right now, about immigration, Jewish immigration. Between 1882 and 1903, about 35,000 Jews relocated or were relocated to Palestine. A lot of this was financed by the Rockefeller family. How interesting. Another 40,000 settled in the area between 1904 and 1914, the beginnings of World War I. And then, of course, the growing fears of persecution, in fact, of flat-out death in Europe, began to rise and culminated with the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Holocaust. And it was about that time that the Zionist movement, which up to then had been about Getting more and more Jews into the Palestinian area, getting more and more land under control, more and more resources, building up an industrial and economic base, the Zionists began to focus on the creation of an independent Jewish state. There's a terrific novel about this, a historical fiction novel, by one of my very favorite authors, Leon Uris. It's called Exodus. You've probably heard of it. There was a movie made, too. Paul Newman started in it. And the movie is terrific, but the book is phenomenal. If you want to really get a feel for what it was like there at that time and for the Jews immigrating to Israel at the time of the formation of the Israeli state and have enjoyable reading the book, I mean it's a terrific book, get a copy of Exodus and read it. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal and obviously I've done a pile of research on this little series of personal financial preparedness I'm bringing you and in doing so I looked at a bunch of precious metal dealers. There's a bunch of them out there. Some are very good, but I think one of the very best BBB, A-plus rated, five-star rated is Harvard Gold Group. They have a terrific private direct delivery program, your house, your business, your investment accounts. They can help you set up your investment accounts to hold these metals I negotiated, by the way, a $250 discount on your first order through them, which I think is kind of cool, and they have a lowest price guarantee, whether it's gold or silver, and they will be happy to talk to you about that and how it works. So call them, 844-977-GOLD, or go to their website, harvardgoldgroup.com, and use the code REID, that's me, to get your $250 discount and some other goodies.
0: Are you a fan of the 1883 miniseries? Then you will love its partial inspiration. Threads West, an American saga. The number one national Amazon and Barnes and Noble best-selling multi-generational epic saga of the American story in the West. Recipient of a whopping 37 national awards, including Best Historical Fiction, Best Multicultural Fiction, Best Fiction Series, Best Romance, and Best Western. You will recognize the characters that live in these pages. They are you. They are us. This is not only their story, it is our story. Story. Threads West is written by Wyoming rancher Reed Lance Rosenthal. Lois Henderson, Chief AD Library Information Services, proclaims fluent and strong, sensual, evocative, and unforgettable. Compared to McMurtry's Pulitzer Prize-winning Lonesome Dove and Michener's Centennial, Rosenthal's epic masterpiece will rival even some of Louis Amore's best-loved work. called the Gone with the Wind of the West and Sackets on Steroids. Get it now. Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Books a Million, Kindle, Nook, Audible, or the publisher. ThreadsWestSeries.com
1: obviously as the zionist movement kind of gathered strength and traction particularly with the formation of the jewish state arabs in palestine got more and more pissed off and an arab nationalist movement developed which kind of combined the most rancorous political divides along with the most emotional religious divides i mean it's a very 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 poisonous cocktail The United Nations approved a plan to partition Palestine into a Jewish and Arab state in 1947. The Arabs rejected it. And in May 1948, when Israel officially declared itself an independent state under the leadership of David Ben-Gurion, literally within days, five Arab nations, Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, invaded the region in what was known as the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. And remember, Israel at that time, really, the Jewish immigrants were outnumbered by the indigenous Arab population. So it was not only an external war, but a civil war within the boundaries of what is now Israel. And it was the chaos, the bloodshed, and the atrocities of that immediate conflict. I mean, there wasn't two days that went by from the formation of the Jewish state to the beginnings of the war that shaped. A lot of the Israeli thought about self-defense and cemented in Israeli minds the importance of a Jewish state. And though the Arabs were unsuccessful in that war, Israel actually wound up standing its ground and adding ground to its UN-approved borders. Warfare between the groups was, well, and is constant. Very quickly, after the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, there was the Suez Crisis. Egyptian president in 1956, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was a hawk, he was an Arab hawk, overtook and nationalized the Suez Canal. You know how important a shipping waterway that is. And it connects the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea. With the help of British and French forces, Israel attacked the Sinai Peninsula and retook the canal. And that was followed pretty quickly in 1967 by a surprise attack by Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. In what was known as the Six-Day War, the Israelis defeated those other three countries in six days. And after that war, Israel took control of the Gaza Strip, the Sinai Peninsula, the West Bank, and the Golan Heights. And they were called the Occupied Territories by both Israel and the Arabs, I might add. And just six years later, there was the Yom Kippur War. Egypt and Syria launched airstrikes against Israel on the holy day of Yom Kippur. The fighting went on for two weeks. The UN finally got it stopped. Syria had hoped to recapture the Golan Heights, which because it's a high point between the countries is very strategic for both observation, artillery, and other military purposes. But Syria was unsuccessful, and in 1981, Israel formally annexed the Golan Heights, although Syria still claims it as its territory. In 1982, there was the Lebanon War. Israel invaded Lebanon and ejected the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. I told you about them last week. The head of the PLO was Yasser Arafat. Later it became the Palestinian Authority. The PLO, which had started in 1964, was the outfit that got all Arabs within the Palestinian territories, so to speak, to consider themselves to be Palestinians. And the PLO was very focused on starting a Palestinian state within the boundaries of Israel. But we're not done. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. The first Palestinian intifada. So the Israeli occupation of Gaza and the West Bank led to a 1987 Palestinian uprising. Hundreds of people died. Peace process, this was the Oslo Peace Accords, which I told you about last week, ended that intifada. By the way, intifada is an Arabic word meaning, quote, shaking off, unquote. The Palestinian Authority was formed after that, kind of took over the PLO. And in 1997, the Israeli army withdrew from parts of the West Bank and gave, because that was kind of the high point of Arab and Israeli relations, several of the portions of land that they had conquered in previous wars back to the Palestinian Authority. But that didn't really stop the Palestinians. You then had the second Palestinian Intifada. It was marked by huge numbers of suicide bombers. And other attacks on Israelis and around around the globe, if you remember back there in the year 2000-2001. And as part of this, Israel agreed to remove all its troops and Jewish settlements from the Gaza Strip by 2005. And then you had the Second Lebanon War. Israel went to war with Hezbollah, which is a Shiite Islamic militant group in Lebanon, (laughs) backed 100% trained, armed, and directed by Iran. And the Second Lebanon War blew up in 2006. Again, a U.N.-negotiated ceasefire ended the battles after a couple of months after it started. And over the last decade, we've had the Hamas Wars. Once again, an Iranian proxy, armed, trained, and funded by Iran, although originally started, as I told you last week in the rest of the story, by the Muslim Brotherhood, who we have ensconced like a cancer right here in the United States. Hamas, by the way, is a Sunni Islamist militant group. And as I told you last week, they, uh, you know, by hook or crook, mostly by crook, quote-unquote won the elections in 2006 in Gaza. So they have been in full control of that wretched piece of land and the abject poverty, crowded poverty, that Gaza represents since that time. And the Hamas wars include literal wars in 2008, 2012, 2014, 2021, and of course today. Israel and America do not recognize Palestine as a state. However, as I told you last week, 135 United Nations members do. And along the way, the Israelites have become toughened and hardened and dead set in defending the borders and not undermining the security of the only Jewish state on the face of the planet. The Mossad, the Secret Service, if you will, the CIA counterpart in Israel is known and feared to be one of the most formidable agencies of its type. And over the course of the years, and in between all these ongoing wars on the ground over there in the Mideast itself, the Mossad has been active around the world. They've spied on the United States, even. They have masterminded and accomplished assassinations of enemy leaders in a number of countries around the world. They were involved in, although the Israeli army, the Israeli Defense Force, the IDF, actually carried out the raids in all sorts of incredibly daring hostage rescues and seemingly impossible special operations and military undertakings throughout the years across the planet. Remember the raid on Antabi, right? That Israeli plane was hijacked and flown into Antabe in Africa. And remember the mission that freed those hostages. Every single hostage was freed the... Defenders of the Intabi airport were, you know, they were just, well, why don't we just, they had a really bad night. And the Israelis only lost one soldier, who happened to be, by the way, kind of the rest of the story, the brother of the current prime minister of Israel, Netanyahu. And there's been hopeful peace deals. There were the accords at Camp David. Unfortunately, the Egyptian prime minister was assassinated thereafter, as was the Israeli prime minister. And more recently, there were the Abraham Accords. Trump basically said that the United States was going to recognize Jerusalem rather than Tel Aviv as the capital of Israel, which of course further enraged the Arabs. And he and his envoy, really, Jared Kushner, got the Abraham Accords signed. And Israel was on the verge of a peace deal with Saudi Arabia, of all countries, when this October 7th Hamas attack occurred causing Saudi Arabia to kind of withdraw from those peace deals many think amongst other missions of Hamas that attack was meant to scuttle any peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel and of course who would benefit most by that oh that's right Saudi Arabia's longtime enemy now pretending to be its friend Iran and Israel is not above taking preemptive action to protect its interests For instance, on the 6th of September 2007, a deal known as Operation Orchard, Israel carried out a surprise airstrike on a suspected nuclear reactor in Syria. In the 1980s, Israel covertly, literally under the nose of the Sudanese government, evacuated first 8,000 and then another 18,000 Ethiopian Jews from literal concentration camps and the Sudanese government didn't even know until the camps were empty. Pretty remarkable feat. And prior to America's involvement in the Iraq War, Israel launched a preemptive strike against a nuclear reactor under construction in Iraq under Saddam Hussein. And the rest of the story, folks, is, and we're going to get into this next week, which is what foreign influences America, Europe, Russia, to a lesser extent, although coming on strong, China, Turkey, and other countries, including Iran, have done to destabilize for their own benefit and their own ideological and political and wealth-driven motives, power-driven motives, what they've done to use both the Israelis and the Palestinian Arabs as pawns. You know, just as in the United States the government is adept at setting Americans against one another by religion, by class, by color, by income level, by education, by gender, I can go on down the list divide and conquer, so too has have Israel and the Palestinians together been played by numerous nations around the planet since Israel's formation in 1948. And I have a solution if one really wants to see peace and prosperity throughout this area of the Middle East, both for the Palestinian Arabs and for the Jews and, of course, for the minority Christians in the area. And I'm going to talk to you about it next week. It's kind of radical but I think it will work. And now in the second of our series of personal financial preparedness, last week I went over the precious metals with you on a really broad brush level. And I think if you listened to that show, and if you didn't, you should, on therightsideradio.com, and you have visited the preparedness page, which we set up last week for all our listeners around the country and around the globe, go to the homepage, upper right-hand corner, click on the link, Financial and Physical Preparedness, And there are a host of articles by lots of people from all over the place who are way smarter than this Wyoming hayseed that will explain all these concepts which I'm bringing you. I'm not an expert in any of them. I'm not giving you financial advice. It's up to you to do the research. I'm just pointing you in the right direction. I'm giving you things to think about because I think we are all either overtly aware or reluctantly aware that the United States dollar... As a currency, the United States dollar as a reserve currency, the United States fiscal stability and the fiscal stability of not only the Western world, but a number of the BRICS countries also, is at peril. And I may be understating it. And in the end, what has value, what there is least of, is always worth most. So assets which are hard, which are real, which are as private as you can be, which are transportable. And which are recognized as stores of value and the means of purchase, purchase and sale of food, you know, basic stuff around the world in the case of precious metals for thousands of years by literally everybody on the planet. And in the case of what we're going to talk about today, Bitcoin in the very, very, very near past in terms of its inception, 2009. And Bitcoin is a different asset. It's kind of an asset of today's day and age. It's a digital asset. I mean, you can't really hold a Bitcoin in your hand. But you can hold a Bitcoin wallet in the form of a USB in your hand. And it can contain your Bitcoin. Or you can buy and sell Bitcoin on one of the exchanges. For instance, Coinbase. And having looked at several of them and researching this little piece that I'm bringing you, Coinbase seems to me, <laughs> I'm a dinosaur, so if it seems to me to be easier, it probably is. It seems to me to be the easiest platform to navigate and to quickly learn and to understand and to be able to use with some proficiency if this is the direction that you want to go. There's advantages and disadvantages to Bitcoin. And by the way, Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency, and there are hundreds of cryptocurrencies And I don't even know what all the different names of all of them are. And I have no idea what they're talking about when they go share dollars and this and that. that. I am talking only about Bitcoin. It is the oldest. It is, even though it's very volatile, the most stable. It is the most widely recognized. It is the most widely traded. It has the deepest market. It has the highest capitalization rate. And it is one of the few assets on the planet of any type that has a limited quantity. There could never be more than 21 million Bitcoin. Oh, but you're wondering, so there's 21 million Bitcoin and there's 8 billion on the planet Earth, 8 billion people. How's that going to work? Well, it's rather ingenious because each Bitcoin can be divided up to 1 100th million. That's called a SAT. So there is plenty of Bitcoin to go around for everybody and to grow that network and increase its value. It's kind of like having one ounce of gold and being able to divide it in 100 million pieces. For instance, let's say the Bitcoin bulls are right, and Bitcoin, a Bitcoin is going to be worth $500,000 in the future. I'm not saying that's going to happen. This is what the Bitcoin bulls say. In that case, a Bitcoin, if it was divided into 100 million parts, would each be worth an increment of that $500,000. Kind of like a dime is an increment to a dollar, or a penny is an increment to a dollar. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal, and obviously I've done a pile of research on this little series of personal financial preparedness I'm bringing you. And in doing so, I looked at a bunch of precious metal dealers. There's a bunch of them out there. Some are very good, but I think one of the very best BBB, A-plus rated, five-star rated is Harvard Gold Group. They have a terrific private direct delivery program, your house, your business, your investment accounts. They can help you set up your investment accounts to hold these metals. I negotiated, by the way, a $250 discount on your first order through them, which I think is kind of cool. And they have a lowest price guarantee. Whether it's gold or silver, and they will be happy to talk to you about that and how it works. So call them, 844 977 GOLD, or go to their website, harvardgoldgroup.com, and use the code REID, REED, that's me, to get your $250 discount and some other goodies. Hey, listeners, this is Reed Lance Rosenthal, your host of On the Right Side Radio, and I have a message for you. Do you want a business? Sell a product? Provide a service? Have a message you want to get out? Do you believe in freedom, the Constitution and America? Here's your opportunity to reach 69 million sets of ears in scores of markets around the country including 5 of the top 10 and 15 of the top 50 markets in the United States of America. Very affordable, very flexible, 30 and 60 second packages available. Give your business a boost and help America get the truth. Call Francis at Media Airtime at 602-300-8250, 602-300-8250, or write Francis at MediaAirtime.com. That's F-R-A-N-C-I-S at MediaAirtime.com. Thank you. Bitcoin is decentralized. There's no what they call counterparty risk. There's no third person involved in all your transactions. You know, once you own a precious metal, if you decide to do that kind of thing, then you own it. And assuming you have possession of it, the counterparty risk is gone. It's strictly up to you as to where you hold it, how you hold it, what you do with it, etc. The same is true with Bitcoin. There is no counterparty. Any other asset, including the assets I'm going to talk about over the coming weeks in this series next week land after that residential real estate and then after that some other things i'm going to bring your way to think about has counterparty risk land is taxed by the government it's financed by the bank stocks i'm not a fan of stocks never have been but if you happen to like stocks think about there's at least 13 different intermediaries between you and selling or buying a stock that's a lot of stuff that can go wrong. In the case of Bitcoin, there are no intermediaries. And in the case of Bitcoin, it is a finite supply, kind of like land. Although, obviously, you can't hunt, fish, raise cows, or play tennis on it. So first of all, let me give you some a really quick history of it. It developed in 2009. It was designed and developed by this mysterious character by the name of Satoshi Nakamoto. Believe it or not, anybody in the world can run the software, and many thousands of people have contributed to its development since it got launched. You've all heard the stories of the Bitcoin millionaires, you know, the guys that went out and bought a 1,000 Bitcoins for 10 cents a Bitcoin when it first came out, and then sold at various points away or at the top of the Bitcoin market, which was, oh, a number of years ago, at $66,000 and change. Bitcoin right now has been steadily advancing, by the way. It got down to $16,000 dollars per bitcoin oh toward the beginning of this year and it's now up to as i'm doing this show about forty-one thousand, give or take it's highly volatile owning bitcoin is not for the weak of heart it is the kind of asset in my hayseed opinion where you want to take some money and if you lose it you lose it after tax you've lost half of it or it goes to the moon and you look brilliant now in bitcoin's defense there are many and more and more people thinking that it's actually going to be a form of alternative currency, a currency which is outside the control of the government, a currency which is as private as a currency can be and which is transportable as any asset on the planet. But you know, it has its drawbacks too. I mean, everything is kind of powered by electricity. If the electricity goes down, uh, Bitcoin goes down. Because the Bitcoin servers and the Bitcoin miners, the guys who quote-unquote digitally create Bitcoin, go down. Bitcoin is legal in most countries on the planet. And even in those which have outlawed it or tried to, it's impossible they have found to control. It is too widely dispersed. It's really... A child of the internet, which is beyond the control, or at least the complete control, of any government. It is one of the few assets of value that is virtually impossible to steal unless you give your Bitcoin to somebody. And the Bitcoin network, because of how it works, the blockchain technology, which is you can never go back and change the history of the blockchain that is Bitcoin. You can only add to it. And that's why it's called, amongst other reasons, a decentralized asset. And there are people who are using Bitcoin like money. There's people who are using Bitcoin as a store of value. Bitcoin is very popular in a number of the less developed areas of the world where you have really totalitarian corrupt governments. And it's very popular with libertarian-type minds. It's kind of interesting that Bitcoin has grown from nothing in 2009, which, by the way, folks, I mean, that's like 14 years ago. I mean, it's a blink of an eye in history. Now There's more than 100 million people who now actively participate in Bitcoin and who use Bitcoin for one of those things, store of value, means of commerce, you name it. And it's growing rather rapidly. There's now even talk of ETFs coming out where you can trade shares of stock, which will be backed by Bitcoin. BlackRock Oh, our friend BlackRock. BlackRock is trying to bring out an ETF. Larry Fink, by the way, the Chairman of BlackRock, globalist that he is, said five years ago that Bitcoin was, you know, dog doo-doo, that it was nonsense, that, you know, who could even think of it? Larry Fink is now the one who's trying to put together the ETF for his company, BlackRock, to trade Bitcoin. And more than anything, if you like this concept, this uh, digital asset concept. This little factoid, kind of the rest of the Bitcoin story, I think you'll find really interesting. So, between 1960 and 2023 now, the U.S. money supply, M2, we've talked about in other shows, has gone up $21 trillion. That is, there's $21 trillion more dollars in circulation today than there was in 1960. And as we know, the more there is of something, the less each of those somethings is worth i.e. in this case dollars. The Bitcoin money supply has gone from zero in 2009 to a maximum of 21 million Bitcoins in 2140. Now those Bitcoins can be divided into up to the one millionth Bitcoin, the sats. But the point is here is that you can see what happens with an unlimited untethered money supply, of fiat currency, as opposed to a fully tethered, absolutely limited type of quote-unquote currency. And in the end, what there is least of is worth most. I have some, I think, really good articles that help me understand it posted on the website for you once again under the preparedness page under rat-tat-tat. There's lots of links in those articles on Bitcoin so you can do a pile of research and there's plenty of other places to get research too. Hopefully I've given you something to think about. Many people think Bitcoin is going to go to the moon. I'm not telling you whether it is or not. I have no idea but it's a very interesting concept that more and more people are getting involved in that even though it's still volatile it's becoming more and more stable at least for that asset and which seems over the past year or two to be more steadily increasing in value than it has in the past bitcoin was believe it or not the best performing asset of any asset anywhere of any type over the last 10 years and now it's time for rat-a-tat-tat. Let's see how far we can get because I have a bunch of stuff to bring you and it's piled up since last week and the week before and etc. So I brought to your attention that there's no way this October 7th Hamas attack could have occurred without Israel or the United States or somebody knowing about it. And now there seems to be some reporting in the New York Times of all place that there's a 40-page document, which apparently they have a copy of, and which was reportedly obtained from Israel, which kind of lays out the game plan for October seventh and predicted many of the steps which Hamas took. Israel's kind of shrugging this off saying that we will we'll take a look at it after the war ends and figure out what happens so it never happens again. And <laughs> you know, the United States. The National Security Council spokesman, John Kirby, oh wow, I can barely watch him. Appeared a week ago Sunday. And he was pressed by George Stephanopoulos on whether the U.S. had any warning of the attack or should have had any warning of the attack. And we got the same mealy-mouthed answer, which kind of leaves you scratching your head. Quote, our intelligence community is taking a look into that, Kirby said. But he added, there are no indications that we, the United States intelligence community, had any knowledge that Hamas was planning or of that document beforehand, or any visibility into it, unquote. How's that for a non-denial denial? And also kind of in line with our Israeli history story tonight, Marco Rubio, Republican, Florida, Senator, He blasted Democrats because last Thursday, a week ago Thursday, they blocked his motion to deport terrorist sympathizers in the U.S. on visas. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about what the Democrats voted on. Rubio's initiative, and I quote, to revoke visas and initiate deportation proceedings for any foreign national who has endorsed or espoused terrorist activities of Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Hezbollah, or any other foreign terrorist organization. By the way, the Democrats In the Senate, blocked the same motion last month. And he brought up the second motion after a bunch of radical Palestinians, pro Palestinian protesters, stormed a House office building and the Democratic National Committee headquarters. And leading House Democrats who were in the headquarters had to be evacuated by Capitol Hill police officers. By the way, Rubio correctly pointed out that the current federal law prohibits terrorist supporters from entering the U.S., never mind having a visa here. Quote, a visa is not a constitutional right. It is a temporary permission for foreign nationals to visit our country. Supporting terrorists, as defined by U.S. law, disqualifies individuals from having a visa. It makes no sense to protect foreign nationals who support terrorism, but that is exactly what the Senate just voted to do. Unquote. I mean, with friends like the Dems, folks, who needs enemies? And you probably know that a week ago, the House voted to send more aid to Israel. And it passed, actually, with bipartisan support, although not overwhelming, bipartisan support in the House. But the Democrats, once again in the Senate, have killed the bill. I mean, it's really remarkable, and the Jewish community, for the most part, continues to vote Democratic. I mean, it's just beyond me. Let's talk a little bit about some economic stats, because it ties right in with our preparedness series. I mean, folks, if you think there's going to be a soft landing, if you think the stock market is going to go to the moon and beyond, and everything's going to be cool, if you think inflation has really come down, if you think everything is rosy, like the lies that Obama third-term administration folks are feeding you, if you think any of that is true, well, wow. I mean, I have some desert land I'll sell you in the North Pole. How's that? Let me give you a couple of economic stats here, which somehow the government just isn't sharing with you. First of all, did you know that FHA... You know, government kind of back mortgages. The COVID forbearance period ends like now. That means there's a whole bunch of people who are going to have to suddenly be paying mortgages who haven't been paying mortgages in three years. What do you want to bet that not all of them can write a check? The employee retention credit, the ERC, is over. I mean, I think it's wrapped up at the end of this year. That's $440 billion that the Democrats snuck into the money supply, which is going bye-bye. Retail sales... Not adjusted for inflation. The government played a game with you. They adjusted them for inflation to make them look like they were positive. Retail sales were negative, folks, for the last two months. If you don't add in inflation, which is not a retail sale, let's face it. Did you know that food prices, you know, they have inflation under control. Food prices have increased 25% on average since 2020. 25%, I mean, that's a lot. Did you know corporate bankruptcies... Now, the fiscal year for the federal government, October 2023, has ended, are up 30% over the last fiscal year. Did you know that layoff announcements, you know, big outfits saying we're going to lay off 5,000 people, 1,000 people, 10,000, whatever it is, here in the next 60 days, because they have to, right? They're publicly traded companies. They got to dish out the bad news. Layoff announcements are up 198% over the last six months. I mean, that's huge. Non-farm payrolls, I mean, the government tells us, I've brought you part of this, but this is more. How great the employment picture is and how all these new jobs are being created. And you know, if you've been listening to this show, that number one, the huge bulk of new jobs are part-time jobs, not full-time jobs. In fact, 695,000 full-time jobs have been lost. But it's really kind of worse than that. Because the index of aggregate hours worked. Forget all this hoopla has gone down for the last three months. Down. You know, real input is when you work an hour and do something. You're productive. And if you add to the economy two part-time jobs paying, I'm going to take a number, $20 an hour, that total nine hours on any given day, one five and one four, one turn of pizzas and one dishing out coffee at the local coffee bar, whatever it happens to be. That's not the same as a full-time job paying 40 bucks an hour for 8 to 10 hours a day. Both the quality of the jobs, the quantity of the jobs, particularly full-time jobs, and the amount the jobs are paying are steadily decreasing. And finally, never mind the government stats, which are totally manufactured, totally political. The Household Survey of employment, showed a net loss last month of 348,000 jobs. Now, who do you think knows what the job market is? A household who has two people working and one just got laid off, or the government up there doing seasonal adjustments with a political motive? By the way, those stats I just brought you in, those last four or five thoughts, are right from the Department of Labor. That's right, the U.S. government. They just forgot to tell you that they had them. We're out of time. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Remember, look in the mirror, repeat after me, and repeat it with conviction. I will muster. I will stand. I will not comply. I will never give in. I will never stop fighting. I will join with those in these United States and around the globe who love freedom as I do. And we will win. Oh, yes, we will. Keep the wind at your back. I'll talk to you next week.
0: Please remember, if you've missed any shows, just click on Show Archive and you'll find all of his shows. We look forward to seeing you here again next week for another episode of Read Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side.